Well, good morning. Uh, please find First Thessalonians in your Bibles. For any who are visiting, I'm uh, my name's Preston. I'm not Mike, the guy that Ken prayed for. I'm not the pastor and one of the elders filling in. Uh, we have a, we've elected a pastor. He's in the U.S. awaiting visa and adoption. We are eager for his return, but uh, for today, you got me. So First Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, I've called this message the flourishing cactus. And again, for visitors, that might seem strange. Actually, for members and everybody who's been here, it actually seems strange, I realize. Um, when we began this series in Thessalonians, I, I call the whole series the Cactus Church. Um, <clears throat> it's really a dumb title, and we all know it. I know it. Uh, sort of hoping everybody just sort of forgot it. But then I used it again today. So, you know, the reason I chose this was because the church, like a cactus, is inherently designed and meant to flourish in a hostile environment, okay? And that is why I think it fits. As uh, Michael Kruger has pointed out, we live in times that are much like the second century in which Christianity is widely known, widely misunderstood, and in many ways despised. But the gospel was made for times like these, so we don't need to be afraid. But one of the best things we can do in times like these is to have a church that is healthy and strong community. And that is what these verses in 1 Thessalonians 5 are about today. With these closing words of 1 Thessalonians, Paul touches on some practical areas of church life help us, that help us see what healthy community looks like in the church and the vital part that we play in helping it flourish and, and be a healthy community. So kind of a long passage. We'll read each section as we walk through it. But before we do that, we need to see that these things that we'll talk about starting at verse 12 are only possible because of all that he has said leading up to this. So I want us to take just a minute and walk through 1 Thessalonians really quickly. And some of you are saying, well, you know, if we could have done it this quickly, why have we spent the last 12 weeks here? But, you know, it's not that simple. I want us to remind ourselves of what we've seen, what we've learned, and to understand that these things are foundational for the church to flourish for the church to have a healthy community. This is, that's the foundation of the things that we'll talk about today. So a flourishing church, healthy church, it is marked by faith, love, and hope in Christ. That's from chapter one. Also in chapter one, it has a robust, even if not complete understanding of election about salvation that leads inevitably to gospel advance. A flourishing church has a clear understanding of what true conversion is. We get into chapter 2. Flourishing, healthy church has a gospel ethos. It's faithful to the message as received. So we're faithful to that, but we also live consistently with that message. And then the flourishing, healthy church has a godly perspective on suffering and helps others press on despite hardships. That gets us through chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, in the more practical section, we see a healthy, flourishing church lives to please God through holiness and through love. And then the healthy church has its hope fixed on Jesus, died, risen, and returning, end of chapter 4. And as we saw last week, it lives prepared for his return. So these things are foundational for the more practical things that we'll talk about today for the areas of of church life. And it is quite a list, right? Uh, You might have noticed as we've been in in 1 Thessalonians that more than once Paul has reminded them you know, we spoke about these things when we were, when we were with you. We, we've said these things. And it's good to remember that, or even more remarkable, that when they were in Thessalonica, they were only there three Sabbaths, okay? <clears throat> so if you had around three weeks in a place, 
and you're starting from zero, do you think you would get to everything on this list in three weeks? And not only would you get through it, they would understand it, embrace it, and suffer for it. Now, you know, I've been a seminary professor. I could cover material, right? But that whole understanding, embracing, and suffering thing, I don't know. You know, I give an exam at the end and walk away. I can be sure they've memorized it. But how do you know? This, it is, what I'm saying is this is remarkable, okay? And there are things on this list that these days we would never talk to a new convert about, right? I mean, talking about election and end times. You know, if I'm talking with somebody who's a new believer and they ask me that, I'll just say, you know, just wait. There's, there's time for that later. You know, let's just focus on some other things. But Paul went there and he went there for a good reason because these things are essential for us to have our Christian life grounded in eternity, past and future, but for a church to be healthy. None of these things are, are fluff. These things are all important for the life of the church. So with this, this background, let's look at 1 Thessalonians uh, starting at verse 12. And I want us to see six things that we need to be doing consistently if we want ICP to flourish. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I think we all want that. Well, the first thing is in verses 12 and 13, and that is to honor our leaders. Verse 12, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So Paul, of course, honor should be a part of all our relationships, but here he is emphasizing the role of elder or pastor here. And he mentions three things that the pastor does. He says they work hard. Now, I have been a pastor, and I have had people say to me, I know a pastor only works one day a week, so how hard can it be? Well, most of us know better. Um, it is pretty much a 24-7 job. Uh, it is a misperception to say they only work one day a week. In case you don't know, the work of ministry is really not so much physically demanding sometimes, but usually it's not so physically demanding, but it is emotionally and spiritually demanding. And it never ends. It is, it is constant. It's, you never feel like this is done. I mean, I sit down at the end of a sermon, I think, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I never felt ready. You know, at the beginning, I just cry for mercy on my way up here, and somehow the Lord makes it work because it's His Word, and He's good and faithful. Um, <clears throat> But I will say this, if I, I, like I said, I've been a pastor. If I have relearned anything um, in the last 13 months since Drew has been gone and we've had to step up and cover things, it's a lot of work being a pastor. It is. And I really look forward to Mike coming. I mean, I really pray for that visa to come through and that adoption to be final. I might pray more than... Well, actually, you've had to suffer through my preaching, so you're probably praying every bit as hard as I am, right? As long as you're praying, right? Yeah, he needs the prayer and you need the practice. So, um, okay, forget it. All right, so they work hard, okay? They care for you. Now, this word emphasizes not only care, but also leadership and direction. Because the pastor's work is more than a job. It is like, it is like a shepherd. It, he, he, he leads a flock to, to feed them well. He warns them against dangers. He seeks out strays and brings them back. Uh, and so that's what a pastor does. He seeks before God to lead us faithfully, to feed us from God's word, to seek us out when we stray. But it's not because it's a job. It's because he cares. 
Again, I, I look back at my own experience as a pastor, and it was, I left, we left that church 28, over 28 years ago. But, and I mean, I'd get annoyed and frustrated and discouraged sometimes, but Sunday morning would come along and I would see those knuckleheads and I would just, I just could not help but care. I might show up, you know, wanting to throw rocks at them, but <laughs> by the time, you know, we start worshiping, I, there's just a, something of a pastor's heart that just kicked in and said, I can't be mad at these folks as much as I want to be. You just can't help but care. That's, that's what a shepherd does. The third thing they do is they admonish you. Now, this word means to instruct, but it also includes the idea of, of warning or even rebuking. And that is necessary at times. It's necessary for a pastor to warn against beliefs and actions that can destroy us and, and derail us. And our days are full of those kinds of things, things like the prosperity gospel, sexual confusion that abounds. The world is calling to us, offering its, its junk jewels like its priceless treasure. And it's all nice and shiny, and we are easily captivated so we have to we need to be admonished to be warned sometimes rebuked so as I read these uh, first I would like to publicly express my appreciation for my fellow elders um, with Drew leaving and a uh, year ago July uh, all of us have, many of you as well have stepped up covered areas of church life uh, some in more visible ways than others but uh, Drew left an enormous gap, an enormous void in the life of the church. He did so much. One of his last meetings with us, we, we said, just, would you just write down you know, what you do so we'll kind of know what we need to you know, work on? And it was like two pages, single spaced. And I just thought, oh my goodness. That's why I travel so much with work, so I can get away from, I'm joking. But it's like, you know, if I have to tell you I'm joking, it's not funny. But anyway. You know, it was just like, really? And he did those things. He was a great blessing, but he left an enormous void. So I, I just want to publicly say how grateful I am for, for Job and Trevor and, and Ken and, and Dan, who even has the courage to be in Sunday school this morning. Um, I'm grateful for those brothers. And I'm really thankful for Mike, because as I read these, I think he really models these things well. Every time we talk, I'm more encouraged, more eager for him to be here. And I'm just so very encouraged that the Lord has brought all this to pass and trust his timing, getting him and his family here. So I think these things are, are, are true of him. So as he comes, let's just plan on acknowledging and honoring him, holding him in high regard, him and his family, just expressing our appreciation to him, encouraging him. Um, you know, they will be moving cross-culturally, big learning curve. Let's just plan on letting them know that we have their back and we want to encourage and be a support to them. So uh, let's, let's do that. But one thing we can do is in verse 13 to really help make his work a joy, and that is to live in peace with one another. Because this is something else I know, is that few things can drain the vitality and joy of a pastor more than conflict among members in the church. And an international church context is a fertile ground for misunderstanding, communication. So let's work hard to live in peace with one another. If you have a conflict with someone, address it. Don't let it fester. And let's, let's just have healthy relationships, not let conflict mushroom like that. Second thing we are to do is to help each other press on. That's in verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, 
help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So we just saw something of the pastor's work, but scripture is clear. We have a responsibility toward each other to help each other press on, keep following Jesus. So we cannot neglect our brother or our sister thinking, you know, that's the pastor's job. He should be taking care of that. I'm not going to get involved in this. We are responsible to and for each other. We owe this to one another. It's, it's for all of us. He mentions uh, some heart conditions that can apply to any of us and then has some couple of words for all of us. So he talks first about the idle and disruptive. We saw this in chapter 4. There were some within the church who were not working. Because they weren't working, they had all this time on their hands. So they go and they bother the people who were working. And because first group wasn't working, then they are needy in an unhealthy way. So they are dependent on the people who were working. Are you totally confused by that? Idle and disruptive. Not working. So they go and they mess with the people who are working. Okay? So they're disrupting them. But again, because they're not working, they came by food. So now they are dependent on the people who are actually responsible and doing their jobs. So Paul says in chapter 4, this is a failure of love. And out of love for the Lord, for the church, you need to be responsible for your life and take care of yourself and be prepared to meet the needs of others. I understand there are times when people have need, genuine needs, and, and we want to be a part of helping that. But there is a point, you know, which... We just need to be taking responsibility for our lives and not be an unhealthy burden on other people. So that's one group. Then there are the disheartened. These have been following Jesus, but they are in a season of discouragement. And we've all felt this at one time or another because life really can be discouraging. So we need to watch out for each other and encourage one another. So if it's the, the idle and disruptive, they need a warning. And that's, that's the same word in verse 12 that was admonish, okay? It, and it's translated warning here. Warn the island disruptive. Those who are discouraged, encourage them. And then there are the weak. And these might be weak in faith. They might be weak in conscience. They might be weak in character, weak in body. Weakened by temptation or the cares of life or getting beat up by the world. Weak in their resolve to press on. Help them move forward. Idle and disruptive, get a warning. The discouraged get encouragement. The weak get help. And everybody needs patience with each other. Right? That's the poem I cited a few weeks ago. To dwell above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But here below with those we know, that's another story. Uh, we all need patience with each other. And this partly because you can't recognize exactly what's going on with somebody. Somebody stops attending, stops serving, stops engaging. And you think, well, are they idle and disruptive? Or are they discouraged? Or are they weak? You know what? All of that looks alike if you don't know the person. <laughs> you don't know. We have to be patient. Because if you go to somebody who's discouraged and you warn them, you have just pushed them down further. And so what we need to do is come alongside each other, know each other, ask good questions, and give people the help they need. Some people do need to be warned, but more often I think people need to be encouraged to press on. So we all need to be patient, know each other, and give each other the help we need. And patience also helps us avoid seeking revenge. And when someone says or does something that hurts or offends us, 
Revenge is often our first impulse. We want to strike back, speak back. And anger can consume our energy. And it can lead us to make some really terrible and destructive choices. And our modern culture exalts victimhood. And that leads to a form of revenge. So we need perspective. We need to realize that what that person has done to you or me, it pales in comparison to what you or I have done to Christ by our own sin. There's really no comparison. So if someone wrongs you, and if you can overlook it, overlook it. Just let it go. Choose to forgive. Now, it may take time for your feelings to align with that choice, but choose to forgive. Then if you need to speak to them, you can do it in love, not out of, not out of revenge. Not to strike back. If you need to, you pray through one of those imprecatory psalms, okay? Remember, Yano read one for us last week, you know? You know, God, break their teeth, break their elbows. It's like, you know... You know, I think God kind of chuckles behind a cloud and says, I'm not going to do that. But it's right to pray. And you know what? I'm thankful for those psalms because it lets us know that godly people struggle with that. And so when I feel that, sometimes I go to that psalm. And I know, okay, the thing is, you read through that psalm, you get to a place of peace, and you leave the, the vengeance in the Lord's hands. The point is that is not to give you ideas for how to get back at somebody. The point is for you to process the emotion that you have and to let the Lord deal with that because that day is coming when the Lord will address every wrong. He will. He will do that. And we can trust Him. And that frees us from having to strike back. We can, it's, it's hard. I know it's difficult, but it's in the moment especially. And sometimes you just need to count to 10 and take a deep breath and just don't. <laughs> just don't strike back. But wait and wait on the Lord. He will address it. And if you need to speak with someone, do it in a spirit of love, not revenge. But notice it's also in this verse, it's not just don't seek revenge. It is make sure nobody seeks revenge. So we need to be watching out for each other. It's like the story in the first Samuel 25, when, when uh, David was on his way to take out personal revenge on Nabal, the, the idiot. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, intervened and kept David from making a terrible choice. And David recognized it. You know, she was a remarkable woman. And she had the privilege of being one of David's many wives. You know, congratulations. So, um, <laughs> just got a promotion. So, um, it's not in my notes, huh? Okay. So, the thing is, she understood and she helped David avoid making a choice that he would have later regretted. So that's just the attitude. It's not that we're, we're policing each other. We're just watching out. Because if you know someone, you, you can sometimes tell. When, and you know there's, there's anger, there are things going on. And you might need to just help diffuse that situation. Third thing he tells us to do is to cultivate holy habits. He mentions three here, verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He says these are God's will for us. In chapter 4, he said holiness is God's will for us. There's no contradiction. It's also God's will that these things become habits for us, even reflexes. How, how great it would be if our, if our, our spontaneous reflex to things was, was joy and gratitude and prayer instead of revenge. Why wouldn't that, that would that'd make a huge difference, right? Now, you need to know there are benefits to doing this. There are benefits to choosing to rejoice 
and give thanks and pray. But this is not so much therapeutic. Our, our surrounding culture is all about therapy, feeling better. Folks, this is just the right thing to do. You may choose to rejoice, choose to pray, choose to give thanks, and you still might feel not so terribly happy. <laughs> just know that it is the right thing. This is God's will. I do believe, I've experienced in times you feel better, but often in the moment, you do not. And that is okay. You choose to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And the rejoicing is not the, the fake joy that it ignores reality. It is a focus on a greater reality and a greater joy. Some circumstances are more conducive to joy than others. But we have to keep our focus on Christ because He is our great joy. And sometimes the joy comes just from the knowledge that what we suffer, the misfortunes, things that happen to us in life are not without purpose. They're not without meaning. That God uses all of that for his glory, for our good. And we're told to pray continually. This is an attitude of prayer we can have constantly. It reflects our attention. And sometimes I, I try to remember to pray this daily. Don't always. But to, to just say, Lord, I want to live this day in conscious fellowship with you. I want to walk through this day with you. I want to remember you are with me. You're in me. I'm in you. And that's how, what I want to, to shape my, my attitudes and, and feelings and thoughts today. So, you know, we have the times of focused prayer. That's, that should be a regular part of each of our lives. There are the brief urgent prayers, you know, the Lord have mercy prayers. That's good. He hears those because he's merciful. There are the opportunities to pray while you're riding on public transportation or driving or walking or in the waiting room, whether that's for a diagnosis or a train. Life, there's a lot of waiting in life. Those are good times to pray. And there are times of fear and anxiety in which, I don't know about you, but it's things that I give to the Lord daily, many times daily. I give something over to the Lord and, and still it weighs on me and I keep giving it to Him and he keeps taking and somehow it keeps, keeps coming back. I just don't know what else to do but to continue to give that over to him. So all of that's valid. All of that's good. Third thing is to give thanks in all circumstances. Like with joy, some circumstances naturally evoke gratitude. Uh, sometimes you might have to think a moment to find something for which to be grateful. I've tried to train myself to begin all of my prayers with thanks. Just to focus my heart and mind on Christ and his goodness to me before I start asking for things. Now, the fourth thing Paul tells us to do here is to use discernment in gatherings. He says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So he is encouraging them away from two extremes. One is the total dismissal of all prophecy and the other is the uncritical acceptance of all prophecy. Now you may recall the prophets in the Old Testament often began their discourses with thus says the Lord. They were repeating a message they had received from the Lord and they did that word for word faithful to a message they had received. In the New Testament the apostles speak with that kind of authority. Whereas the Old Testament prophets says thus says the Lord, the New Testament apostles say thus says the Lord Jesus because they had walked with Jesus they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They were his commissioned and authorized spokesmen. And we have their words in the New Testament. Okay, so the counterpart of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament 
are the apostles. But prophecy was a very much a part of congregational life in the New Testament. People would offer messages to the congregation, and especially in the early years. People offered messages to the congregation, which they claimed to be given to them by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit did and does speak through people. So dismissing this totally would be like throwing water on the fire. Don't quench the Spirit. But it's also so highly subjective, and we are so prone to self-deception, that this is fertile ground for error and false teaching. And so we find in the New Testament a good, healthy balance between spontaneity and order when the congregation gathers. So prophecies were to be weighed in light of Scripture and in light of known apostolic teaching. So we see it here in verse 21 where he says, Test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. We also see it in 1 Corinthians 14 where he says, Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So there was a, a second, there was a, a weighing, a discerning of things that were spoken like that. Now keep in mind also that these were house churches. They were smaller gatherings, a lot more conducive to this kind of participation. It's really hard to make this happen well in a gathering of a couple of hundred people. So just logistically, it's more conducive in smaller groups. So in effect, New Testament times prophecy. It's one person saying what they believe the Lord wants them to say in a specific situation. So you might call my preaching today a form of prophecy. It's not a thus says the Lord prophecy. It is only to the extent that I reflect what the New Testament says. I am saying what I believe the Lord wants me to say, to make the text clear, to point you to Christ. After much prayerful study, somebody asked how long it takes me to prepare a sermon. I say 61 years and a few hours. You know, <laughs> it's, um, you know that's it. Um, but, you know, I work in the languages, diagram my sentences, analyze my verbs, read people a lot smarter, better communicators than I am, and learn from that and try to put that in, in a form that, that will hopefully be faithful to the text, clear to you, and point you to Christ. But I fully expect you to weigh anything I say in light of Scripture. Okay? Because I'm under the authority of God's Word, just like all of us are. So... You know, my, my job here as a preacher is to let the Word speak, or not to hinder the Word speaking, not to hinder the Lord speaking to you through His Word. So I'm not offended if you have questions or disagreements about something I say. You feel free to reach out to me. I'm easy to find on the website and Facebook and other forms of interruption. So um, feel free if you have issues. Feel free to reach out. I'll try to answer. Or send you to somebody smarter than I am, like Karen. I'll get her to answer. So, um, so the fifth thing that we should be doing to have a flourishing, healthy church, it is to pursue holy character. This is in verses 23 and 24. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So this is his prayer, his desire, his indirect way of urging them to pursue sanctification or holiness. He mentioned this also in chapter 4. This is, you know, sanctification or holiness, it is not primarily saying no to anything that you might possibly enjoy. It is first and foremost an acknowledgement that every area of your life belongs to Jesus Christ. It is positive. 
Okay? You belong to Christ. That's good. And any no, any negative choice, any no, anything you say no to is because first you have said a yes to Christ. And I can promise you that yes is much more satisfying. So I, from, I said this before, but for me, to, when I learned this, it really changed my attitude toward holiness and toward following Christ. It was uh, just really helpful to me. I hope it is to you. But notice here the focus on God. It is a prayer and a wish. But God is the God of peace. He's, that is the, the Hebrew word behind this would be shalom. And this is not just the absence of conflict. This is well-being. This is, this is health and wholeness. So this is good for us. Holiness is good. But he is the God of peace, the God of shalom. He is the one, he is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who has called us to holiness. He's the one who, who is faithful to his promise and his purpose to make us holy and blameless in character. So we can be confident that it will happen. We won't be perfect in this life. That happens when Jesus comes. But we can be blameless. You can live life such that if an accusation is raised to you, somebody would say, no, nah, there's no way. You, you live a life. Of, you can live with blamelessness and integrity that's within reach. It's a behavioral thing. Starts in the heart, of course. Perfection comes when Jesus comes, but we pursue it, right? And we know that we have a part to play in that pursuit because we, it, it doesn't happen automatically. My father was a farmer and you know, he, he worked hard, got up early in the morning, he planted, he harvested, but ultimately he was at the, the mercy of forces beyond his control. He could plant and he could harvest or pick as we did with cotton. <laughs> um, he, he raised cotton, cattle, and children. Um, so I was, I was one of those crops and involved in the other two. So um, I just wonder why we always had beef at home. I, it didn't occur to me that that was, you know, cattle that we knew. So anyway, it's another story, also not in my notes. But had he not planted, he would not harvest. Okay? He had a responsibility in that, but he could not change a seed into a plant. And it is the same with holiness. We are saved by grace, and yet our growth in holiness, we have a responsibility in that. Now, ultimately, we cannot make ourselves grow. But there are things God has given us to do that he does not do for us, but enables us to do so that we grow. Things like spending time in the Word. Things like praying. Things like being in fellowship, especially when, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That is just a sweet, special time with us and the Lord together. And it means fighting sin daily with the gospel. These are the kinds of things that are used by the Lord to renew our minds, to renew our desires, to help us grow in holiness. And I know that some of you are really fighting for holiness and you are here today and you may be deeply discouraged because you feel desperately and deeply unholy and you feel that you are losing the battle. In reality, you actually might be winning because the closer you get to the light, the more you see your own darkness. And so take heart if that is you today. Uh, you are in the right battle. You have the right enemy and the right ally. So don't stop fighting. Pursue holiness, knowing that 
that God is energizing you for that pursuit and for that battle. Don't give up. I've been at times in my life when I've been so discouraged, feeling, seeing so much unlikeness to Christ in me, so much sin, so much unholiness. But I also realized that is happening. I'm seeing this because of grace. I'm seeing this because I'm drawing closer to Him. And that is good. And so, in that, in that moment of battle, I'm going to stand with Jesus against myself and say, you know what, <laughs> I have an evil twin, and I'm going to stick with Jesus. <laughs> Hopefully my evil twin is not going to win the day. So keep fighting. Do not be discouraged in the battle for holiness, especially at those times when you feel overwhelmed. Keep fighting. You have the right enemy, the right ally. Keep going. The last thing he tells us to do, verses 25 to 27, he says to prioritize prayer, fellowship, and the word. So he says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Now we're tempted to overlook these final verses as just, you know, just wrapping it up. Paul's landing the plane here, but there is actually more for us here. So he says, pray for us. So here's Paul the Apostle who has seen the risen Christ, spokesman for Jesus, and he wants the Thessalonians to pray for him. Now remember, Acts 17, compared to the Bereans, the Thessalonians were not so noble. And they were recent converts. And here is Paul, this apostle, instrument of God's revelation, church planter extraordinaire, and he wants these less than noble, recently converted Thessalonians praying for him. I think that's instructive for us, right? We need people praying for us. And I think we, as a church, especially because of the rapid turnover we have as an international church, we need to be praying for people who have been a part of our fellowship, but no longer are missionaries who uh, maybe here at church planting and come to our fellowship to be refreshed, or maybe it's pastors who have moved on, the John Walters and the Drew Stevens and one or two more. The, <laughs> the Barnes can name them all, right? You guys have been here. But uh, the, you know, praying for the people that, that God has brought here, for, that our lives have crossed paths and they've enriched us and, and hopefully we've enriched them. And as God brings them to mind, let's pray for them because it's just good and right to do that. Then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And we read this and we think, okay, you know, say hi. You know, hug, handshake is okay. Um, you know, holy kiss, not an unholy kiss. I think we might be missing the point because a holy kiss, or also called the kiss of peace, was sometimes a part of the early church's celebration of communion or Lord's Supper. And so that's, that's that moment when we specifically focus on what God has done in the sacrifice of Christ to reconcile us to himself and to each other. And so that's a really appropriate time to, maybe there needs to be reconciliation even within the fellowship. And, it's, and you know, one thing about that holy kiss, you can't really do it from a distance, you know? And I think it may be a way of just saying, maybe there needs to be a renewal of fellowship. And yeah, a hug, handshake, high five, elbow bump. You know, during COVID, I did this a lot, hand on the heart, that's okay. That was a season. It's past. It's okay. And I know the whole holy kiss, the informal kiss thing is cultural. Americans really don't do it. At least in the South, we don't do it very much. In Romania, people did it, and it was called a poop. Isn't that great? <laughs> we poop on the cheek. So It's what we did. We pooped for the glory of God. So, uh, you know, but you do the whole double poop thing, you know, it's okay. But 
in the fellowship of the church, especially at a time of communion, I think a holy kiss, it's okay. And I remember as a pastor, again, church I pastor was, was small, and you know, there were times in, as we celebrated the Lord's Supper, I would just say, you know, if any of you need to say something in the church, you need to ask forgiveness, if you need to reconcile with somebody, you know, we'll just have, you know, just time of music and every once in a while there would be somebody who'd get up and go talk to somebody else and they'd just make something right. There's no public confession or anything like that, but it was just a moment for people to remember, this is not about us and my, my petty offenses and wrongs. It's time to let that go. And here's somebody that I've withdrawn from. I need to, I need to close that distance. And so there's, there's nothing, um, it's not anything immoral in this. It's, it's, a, it's a holy, sacred kiss, a kiss of peace. I'm not saying we have to do that. Again, house church is really easy. People, you know, we don't need bedlam breaking out with communion, tripping over each other, trying to get to those holy kisses. You don't have to kiss everybody. So remember what I said about weighing everything I said? That's something you need to weigh, okay? I trust you to do the right thing in the moment. But that communion, it, it's, it, we just focus on our fellowship being restored to God, reconciled to God, reconciled to each other. And it may be that the Lord brings somebody to mind in that moment. Maybe you need to make that right. Trust you to do the right thing. Then he says, have this letter read to all. You see, Paul wasn't writing just a personal letter. He was writing as an apostle with the authority of Christ. And he knew that what he was writing was scripture. Even Peter calls Paul's writings scripture in his second letter. And it was not just for the Thessalonians. It was for all of God's people. There is evidence that Paul made multiple copies of his letters and they actually circulated as a collection later in the first century. So he intended his letters to be read to the church and to those the Thessalonians were evangelizing. Remember, that's been a huge part. They've just been just exploding with the gospel all around them. He meant for his letters to be read, for them to take what he said and spread it. He meant for his letters to be read in, in all of God's churches like ours today. So let's treasure the word of God and get it into as many hands as possible. Now verse 28 seems like a really good way for us to conclude today. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our pastor Mike as he and his family prepare to come with our elders as we cover those gaps and make do and muddle along as we do. With the many of you who serve and lead in so many other areas like the six it takes to pull off Sunday school week by week. Uh, with you who are idle and discouraged and weak, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. With us, with the church as a whole, may we indeed all flourish together in the ways we've talked about this morning and more. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with our visitors. If you are living in Prague and need a church home, here we are. If you're traveling somewhere. May God grant you safe travels. Hope today has been a blessing. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you who are here today and need to turn to Christ and be saved. He died and rose again, that you might be forgiven, that you might be free, that you might have life in his name, if you will but turn from your sin and yourself and put your hope in him alone. And if you want to know more about knowing Christ, please Speak to one of us after the service today. Let us point you to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these moments together before your word. We pray that you will take it, seal into our hearts what's been good and right and true and what needs to stay. 
The rest can be forgotten. We leave that in your hands. We pray that your word will bear fruit in our lives, that you'll help us to be faithful to you and these things that you've challenged our hearts with today. We so desire to be a church that reflects you well, that honors you in every way, that is a good and strong community, that, that is refreshing to those who come in beat up by the world and weakened and discouraged and disheartened. We desire to be all that you want us to be, and we pray that you will lead us that direction for your sake, here and around and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.